Careful what you ask for. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock reporting from Dallas-Fort Worth today, and he's Jeremy Wallace reporting from the border most of the week. He's back in Austin now. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and of course, Jeremy's work is primarily at houstonchronicle.com, but you can also see his work at expressnews.com down in San Antonio. Do you feel good, Jeremy? Do you feel like we have really done a bang-up job of reporting on this election? It's just about to happen. I mean, on, on Tuesday... This will be in the rearview mirror. Yeah, it feels like look things are happening all over the state. We are ready to go. It's like you know, if you've been paying attention to you know politics of the last two months, you know we've been everywhere trying to cover every race that we can get our hands on. Absolutely. So President Biden and former President Trump were both on the border in different places, one in Brownsville, one in Eagle Pass. Uh, but before we get to that, we should point out that it was Senator Ted Cruz who just recently said that Biden should come on down to the border and see what's going on there for himself. What was the setting for this, Jeremy? Where was Cruz? Yeah, I was down in Laredo with Ted Cruz, where, you know, Ted Cruz was, you know, meeting with the U.S. Hispanic Business Council. Uh, It became kind of more of a Ted Cruz campaign event, but Hmm. he was asked, if you could say something to, you know, Joe Biden right now, what would you tell him? Senator Cruz, what's the one thing you'd like to say to President Biden? What I'd say to President Biden is come to South Texas. Come to South Texas and see the consequences of the open border that has unfolded over the last year. So of course, Jeremy, you were then also uh, in Brownsville because Biden essentially took him up on that. He was there. Yeah, it's like this totally fits into that you know, old adage of be careful what you wish for. Uh, because it, you know, Biden did come to the border, but he was talking all about the you know, U.S. Senate shut, you know, shooting down that bipartisan border bill that mm-hmm. we talked about in the past. Yeah. Uh, they killed that earlier in the month, and Biden was down there detailing specifically how many you know, uh, extra Border Patrol, how many judges, how many, you know, uh, you know just all kinds of equipment they would have had mm-hmm. if you know, Ted Cruz, John Cornyn, and Republicans had voted for this bill, this bipartisan bill. So he had this chance to kind of go on the offensive and talk about, you know, something that the Republicans had mm-hmm. not done on border security. Yeah, Mr. Biden also acknowledged that former President Trump was also on the border at just about the same time as he was, and he threw down this challenge. I understand my predecessor's legal pass today. So here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics with this issue, Instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me, or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know it's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? He said the time for politics is over, but of course, Jeremy, his critics would say the time for politics is just beginning. This is an election year. Let's remember who the heck we work for. We work for the American people, not the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. We work for the American people. And let's remember who we are. We're the United States of America. No, I mean, just think about this. There's nothing, nothing beyond our capacity. Nothing. When we work together, Jeremy, what was the rest of that event like with the president? Yeah, he had all. Uh, there was one point where we had been down at the actual border, uh, where he was talking to border patrol officials about 
their needs and you know how they needed more uh, technology to kind of deal with the cartels. There's one point they were talking, and you know Biden said, "Y'all have like." Uh, it looks like the cartels have more drones up in the air than you know the border patrol does, and the answer was yeah. You know they have more equipment than we do. We need the border bill to kind of help fill in those gaps. So this was all about you know Joe Biden going on offense for a change on border issues. You know for the last four years we've talked a lot about in the show how Democrats have been on the defense. You know mm-hmm. on this issue of border security, but here he finally makes it to the border. Only the second time he's been on the Texas border since he was president, mm-hmm. but he was very much on offense going after Republicans versus being defensive and trying to kind of work around, you know, Democratic divisions that have often submarined any sort of joint messaging the party has had. Yeah. So you heard Biden say that he'd be happy to work with Trump and the Republicans in the Senate. But Trump in Eagle Pass said that Biden is to blame, plain and simple. And he certainly didn't sound like he was in the mood to work with him on anything. Because everybody I speak to says how horrible it is. Nobody explained to me how allowing millions of people from places unknown, from countries unknown, who don't speak languages. We have languages coming into our country. We have nobody that even speaks those languages. They're, they're truly foreign languages. Nobody speaks them. <laughs> if, um, if Biden said anything like that, Jeremy, it would be the topic on Fox News Channel for about a week. It would be the whole Jesse Waters show. It, 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 the same thing with uh, Trump forgetting, uh, seeming to forget his wife's name at an event the other day, and he, he, he put out a video, Trump put out a video explaining that he did not forget his wife's name um, and that everybody got that wrong. Uh, but yeah, it, it sounds like, you know, that silliness aside, it was nothing but let's get tough on the border. But there is something we should mention here, which is that as Trump was saying all of that, that we have these languages that nobody ever heard, as if I, I don't know if he thinks that the people that he calls illegal aliens are actually aliens from outer space, as he was saying all that, um, one of the people standing with him was the head of the Border Patrol uh, Union, who has said what President Biden said, right, which is that they need to pass this legislation that's been stuck in the Senate. Yeah, what what an interesting piece of nuance to the whole debate, right? Here you had your Brandon Judd, uh, who is with the president, you know, who's endorsed him in the past, who's been very supportive of the president, uh, of former President Trump. Uh, yet he's the one who had been coming out in favor of that bipartisan border bill that Biden was touting down in Brownsville. He's been saying that, like, look, you know, it's like this bill, you know, he even went on Fox News at one point, you know, countering some of the critics of it, saying, no, 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 this bill would put more tools in the box so that even regardless of whoever the president is, whether it's Biden or Trump, uh, there'll be new enforcement mechanisms that will allow us to keep more people from getting into the country. As I can, so he's been like in, he kind of almost shows the difficulty of this issue, right? Where as like, it's clear there are people in border patrol, including him who think this is a bill that needs to get through. So Mm -hmm. it supports Biden, but he's saying Trump would be better on the border. Try to figure all that out. You know, right. it's like what a, what a weird diversity of within one man <laughs> well, on I, this one issue. I think it speaks to the, the you know the greater reality of our politics right now, which is these folks who want all or nothing. That bill in Washington is not one that Democrats and liberals are thrilled about. Right? It's a law enforcement bill only. Right? This has to do with who can come in, who can not come in. 
to the United States and has nothing to do with a path to citizenship, uh, the kind of thing that uh, some moderate Republicans and liberal Democrats have been talking about for years, some sort of comprehensive immigration reform. That bill they're talking about or that they had talked about and seems to be dead now, but uh, the president wants to keep bringing it up and for good reason. Um, that bill is a Republican bill. I mean, it, you know, it, it was negotiated by, uh, you know, a very conservative senator from Oklahoma. He had the audacity to work with Democrats uh, in, you know, in sort of the same way that uh, Senator Cornyn worked, with, you know, with Democrats on a gun safety piece of legislation. Um, but for this guy who heads up the Border Patrol Union, I think it's it's not a crazy position for him to say this, to say, look, what they're talking about in the Senate would be better than what we have, but it's not everything that we want. But guess what? There was a time in politics when that was okay to have that position that, hey, there, there must be some middle ground here that I could go along with. But now it's this all or nothing, you know, all or nothing thing. And so Republicans and Democrats are getting nothing. I think the Democrats here are smart to keep hammering this to say, look, you had every chance to have more border security. Republicans, but you didn't take it. Why won't you take yes for an answer? Um, and if the Democrats can keep that going, I think they might at least be able to sort of neutralize this issue going into the fall election. Yeah, exactly. There was almost like two roads to pick for Republicans on this. Like one was to shoot this thing down and allow this kind of play out and just say, you know, look, it's not a good enough bill. Uh, of course, with all these quotes out from people saying it is a good bill, including Republicans. Right. So that was one route. The other route they could have taken on this thing is like take that border patrol, uh, that border security deal and then flip it around saying, look, it took us like all this pressure, but we finally forced Joe Biden to do what we want to get done. He signed our Republican bill to get this thing through. It shows how effective we are. Send more of us to the Senate and the House and we'll do even more. They could have really kind of spun that all around and really owned that issue. But what they've done is like, again, I'm not saying that Joe Biden now is on equal footing on this issue. Illegal immigration, poll after poll shows that voters are going with Republicans on this. I get right. that. But what this has done it's just given Biden and the Democrats a chance to play offense on this issue. And that has not, we have not seen that in a long time. Not since the, the, the kids in cages stuff have we seen Democrats going, hey, wait a minute. It's like, you just shot down a border security plan. Mm -hmm. It's like, why would you do that? Like, you know, it's like this is literally going to help the country and you use politics to kind of put it aside. So I, I think they've just kind of opened a door here. Again, I'm not saying Biden's going to be at even the score in this thing, but they're giving him the chance to have that run and maybe start making that case. And maybe we'll see some movement in those poll numbers uh, if it is the case that the president and Democrats can keep up this argument and, and continue to make the case that Republicans have the chance to be on board with some sort of a solution. And it's not just liberal Democrats who have said this. It's, it's guys like Chip Roy, who we've yeah. pointed to here on the show previously, who has said over and over again at this point, he said that Republicans in Congress over the course of this term have nothing to go home and brag about. Not one thing. I mean, I'm, I mean, go back and look at, you know, listen to the previous shows uh, where we played the the comments from uh, Congressman Roy or just go look up the video for yourself. I think you can Google Chip Roy and no accomplishments and the video will come right up uh, where he's talking about his own party saying that Republicans, whether it comes to, uh, you know, if, it, if the issue is the border uh, or a whole host of other things that conservatives are concerned about, it's Roy and others who say, hey, Republicans haven't done a thing that they can go home and campaign on. 
Yeah, and and, and you know it's funny because like even like you know I was looking at that border bill and the the union president that we were talking about. He ended up at one point you know telling you know a Fox News audience that like look. If this bill passes, we will be able to detain and keep more people from being released into the United States. They would have been able to detain more people and keep them locked up and deport them. It's like that is like it sounds exactly what Republicans have been asking for. They had that chance to kind of seize on that regardless of all the other stuff and still use it as a weapon against Joe Biden for being too slow on the border and not doing enough until now. But they just gave up all that potential of actually having a policy that the border patrol wants. They need this stuff. You know, it's like, and I think that's what, like when Biden had the border people around him making the case to them, it's like, you see, like, you know, like I, I have no doubt there's some you know, people in the border patrol who are going to be voting for Trump, you know, regardless. But you see, like, from them hearing their pleas, like, man, if we just had more immigration judges to kind of get through these caseloads quicker, you know, it's like we could we could maybe you know make an impact here. And they had that opportunity here, and it just wasn't there. You know, like Republicans shot it down, including Ted Cruz. Yep. It's like who at the beginning of this is saying Biden should come see the border. It's like, well, Biden comes to the border. The border numbers are declining right now. There's not as many you know, people crossing. And he's ha- pounding you on this bill mm-hmm. that you didn't like give him the power to do more with. So I don't know, it's a it's I think this week well, kind of showed how this issue isn't going away anytime soon. And now both sides have something to hit the other one over for the next nine months of our lives. <laughs> yeah, and it strikes me that, you know, we pointed this out on a previous show that Congressman Troy Nels, for example, from Fort Bend County has just said out loud that the reason that they don't want to pass that bill that's in the Senate is because passage of it would help the president politically. It, it's the kind of thing, Jeremy, that if there was a if there was a secret recording, a surreptitious recording of a congressman saying that, it would kind of be a scandal, right? Mm-hmm. People with, you know, it would get reported in the New York Times and, you know, in the Washington Post. And it, it would be, uh, you know, that uh, they, you have aides uh, to uh, congressmen and uh, people who are, you know, close to the speaker of the House have said in these private recordings that they don't want to help Biden. And that's why they're not doing this. But instead... They just say it out loud in front of a TV camera, in front of everybody, and everybody goes, oh, yeah, it was just politics. It doesn't really matter. That's such a bizarre place for us to be in, right, where where they can admit, and not just admit, but almost proudly say that the reason they're not doing something is because they don't want the president to benefit politically from it, whether or not it's the thing that their party has been saying that they want all along, which is more border security uh, to come out of Washington. Now, it wasn't only immigration talk on the border. In a wide-ranging interview, On Fox News Channel, with Greg Abbott at his side, former President Trump said that he would be open to signing a national abortion ban. And remember, there's been some reporting on uh, whether President Trump would be in favor of a 15-week ban or a 16-week ban, maybe with some exceptions. Here's what he told Sean Hannity about that. Largely, they're coming in with a certain number of weeks. And the number 15 is mentioned. I haven't agreed to any number. I'm going to see. We want to take an issue that was very polarizing and get it settled and solved so everybody can be happy. Only Donald Trump would suggest that on an issue like abortion, that you could come up with something uh, as, as far as a policy that would make, quote, everyone happy. 
the, 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 all sides would just say, you know, actually, this is the perfect solution. It's the best deal ever that's ever been proposed when it comes to uh, abortion. Now, what Democrats would say and have said about this, because there was, as I mentioned, reporting about where Trump might come down on a national ban, what they would say is, well, he's admitting, he's saying that he would support a ban on abortion nationally, right? Which is not what Republicans have said all along for 50 years after the, uh, you know, the Roe versus Wade decision, what Republicans always said, um, you know, most Republicans had said that all they wanted was for the issue to return to the states. So that it would be litigated at state capitals and that Texas would have one set of, uh, you know, abortion restrictions that would be, you know, very restrictive. And a place like California would be the opposite, where they would, you know, put it in statute or in their state constitution that there's a right of a woman to seek an abortion if she wants one. But I, I will say on this, Jeremy, the, the former president, he's got keen instincts politically. And so when someone his age is is telling a television interviewer that he hasn't figured out exactly what he supports when it comes to abortion, that he's he's doing nothing but making political calculations, right? I mean, he he should know, you know, as a septuagenarian, what he thinks about abortion at this point. He's had some time to consider it. What he's telling Sean Hannity is, as Republicans, we've got to figure out what's, you know, politically going to work for us on this because, and this is where he he does have a keen political mind. He knows that the kind of restrictions that have been passed in Texas, where Senator Ted Cruz, who we started with, he, Cruz won't even answer questions about the restrictions we have here. Trump knows that this issue is a liability for his party in you know in much the same way that border issues are a liability for Democrats. Yeah, the fact that he was giving that interview on Texas soil, talking about fifteen weeks or sixteen, what? Like, forget that. We get six weeks, man. It's like if you're a woman in Texas, you know, once you get that heartbeat, like you are, you cannot get an abortion uh, under any circumstance. You know, there's not even exceptions like in there. It's like, so like, it, it's crazy that he'd be talking about the national number being like looking for a reasonable compromise that is vastly different from what Texas has in place while standing in Texas. Like what a, a diversity of thought there is like trying to unpack that. So like, what does that mean going forward? It's like, no matter what number they come up with, you know, on a national level for some national bill, mm-hmm. you know, Texas will still be dealing with six weeks, no exception. If you're right. raped or a victim of incest, you are going to have to have that baby, period, is what the rule in Texas is. Yeah. Well, and, and um, when someone tried to figure out uh, in a high-profile way what the exceptions are, um, that person, Kate Cox from Dallas, was denied by the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, they wouldn't, uh, you know, say what the medical exceptions are. The the law is written in such a way that it's confusing to doctors. That's why you have that lawsuit in the first place. She ends up going outside of Texas uh, to have an abortion for the purpose of having more children down the road. Uh, yeah. And so I think that as you know, as you see, Cruz unwilling to answer questions about it, and Trump trying to think through it politically live on TV, it's telling you that you know that the GOP knows that they're sort of in a corner about this. Um, and as you have said before, it means Texas will be right at the center of, even though we're not in play for the Democrats nationally, that, you know, Trump's going to win in Texas. I mean, there's no no doubt about it. You never say never, right? But but there's no doubt about that. This is a Republican state, uh, and it's going to be in the Trump column uh, this fall. But the fact is, on the issues of abortion, and the border and immigration, border security and all that, uh, we're going to be right at the forefront of all the debates happening between Biden and Trump going all the way to November. 
Oh, absolutely. It's like, you know, and I think that, that you know, one of the kind of, you know, step backs I was thinking about, like, look at what we just had this week. We had, you know, President Trump and President Biden both in South Texas at the same exact time talking about national politics. You know, South Texas is a place where that is often forgotten about, and not only in state politics, but certainly in national politics. And here they were front and center getting the attention, you know, maybe not as much as we want, you know, it's like, cause there's a lot more issues about South Texas than the border. Yep. You know, it's like a lot more issues, you know, you talk about healthcare, talk about diversity of jobs and employment opportunities, you know, the oil industry and where's it coming and going, all that stuff kind of like, I'm sure voters there would like to hear these presidential candidates really kind of get into, but at least for one week, we were the center of mm-hmm. the presidential discussion, you know, and at least, at least getting the attention. Would Greg Abbott be interested in being vice president of the United States? We had reported here on the show and at quorumreport.com, that a Republican state senator uh, privately told me that he thought that, you know, Greg Abbott, he, this, was the, this was the quote, um, he said that, you know, he wasn't saying that Abbott's running for VP. He's just doing all the things that you would do if you were, right? And Trump was asked about that during that interview with Sean Hannity. And here's how that exchange went. Let me ask, I I know you've given a little bit of a short list of people that you might be thinking about for vice president. Um, Is Governor Abbott on that list? Well, I'll tell you what. I know I'm not on the list. I I know. (laughs) And I told Sean before, I've been hearing that more and more from friends of mine. After the show, I think I'm going to hear it a lot more, too. Uh, He's a spectacular man. I was honored when I got his endorsement, like... Seven months ago, right. eight months ago, Long and time. I likewise uh, endorsed it. We didn't have a deal. It wasn't like you endorse me, I'll endorse you. I just felt good about it. And he came out and he said, I'd like to endorse you. You know, he did a good job. And uh, I felt the same way about him. And he's done a great job. Yes, certainly he would be uh, somebody that I would very much consider. So he's on the list. Absolutely. You could hear Greg Abbott there right next to Trump, genuflecting and saying, oh, yeah, I've, I've endorsed you for... For forever, it seems. I, I've endorsed you for uh, basically for all time. What he said was a long time, but he he was sitting. He, he was <laughs> Abbott was there, um, just sort of smiling at Trump the whole time that the former president is saying all that. Well, uh, it drove me crazy when I was listening to that because, like, you know, they're saying what seven or eight not, uh, months ago, right? It's like no, it was November. We were all together. It was November. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, y'all. It's like, what kind of like weird time space continuum is he living in? It was like, it was literally November. <laughs> I was with you. I remember yeah. when you did the love fest on that thing. That's when the endorsements went back and forth. So The same people, the same people who would say that Trump had the biggest inaugural crowd in the history of the United States are the ones who would say, oh, yeah, the endorsement happened months and months and it might as well have been 10 years ago. Yeah. That he was first on <laughs> it might have been it honestly the the endorsement that came in November is probably worth two decades worth of support. Um, now this is not the first time that this has come up, as I mentioned. Um, a state representative by the name of Matt Shaheen, as um, Symphonia Thompson, who's the uh, you know longest serving Democratic member of the House, she calls him Shaheen. The Matt Shaheen, he brought this up at uh, at an event in Collin County. Uh, last week, and it was a joint appearance with Abbott. Of course, Abbott's been going around the state and uh, support, you know, holding rallies, supporting those candidates that uh, that he has endorsed. Here's what uh, Representative Shaheen said to the crowd there in um, 
I believe this was in Plano. I wouldn't say this publicly, but would it... Do y'all think it would be a cool idea if, like, President Trump was to make the governor the vice president? I wouldn't say this publicly. I'm just going to say it in front of all of y'all. <laughs> he's not being clever. He's, he's not very smart. So intrepid reporter Jack Fink at CBS 11 television in Dallas-Fort Worth asked Abbott about that, and here's how that went. You know my focus, Jack, and that's to be the leader of Texas. Listen, I, I could have run for national office had I wanted to, but I, I didn't want to because my focus is right here at the Lone Star State. I'm a Texan who loves Texas, and I want to chart an even brighter, stronger future for our state. I've already thought about uh, running for re-election again, and I can tell you from the people talking to me here today, taking pictures with me today, same thing I hear every day. They say, Governor, please stay in Texas. Please run again. That's what I hear every day from my fellow Texans, and that's what I intend to do. Now, the governor said a version of this again today uh, at an event, it looks like uh, at the governor's mansion, where he just said, look, I'm not interested in the VP job. Uh, but I'll just say this, Jeremy, without, without you know, exhausting this topic, because we have talked about it before, because in, a, in, a, in many ways, we started the, the ball rolling on this conversation publicly here uh, and at quorumreport.com as well. My publisher, uh, Mr. Kronberg, has written a little bit about this as well. Um, but I will say this. Whenever a politician says, I'm not interested in that other job, that is higher than the job I'm in. When they go for that job anyway, nobody cares. Or ever, right? So, oh, I'm not ever. I'll, you know, uh, somebody who's in the Senate saying that, that oh, I'll never run for governor of Texas because I'm. I have the. What, what's the answer that people always give if they're in office? They say I have the best job in the world right now. If Lieutenant Governor Patrick, if he was asked, "Do you want to be the governor?" The first thing he's going to say is, "Look, I've got the best job in in politics in the United States, probably." Lieutenant Governor of Texas is the pinnacle for me. And he would say that and in a way sort of promise people that he doesn't care about running for governor, doesn't want to be governor. But as soon as it came open and he had the shot and he just went and ran anyway, no one would care. And they never do. Yeah, it's the thing where you want to be on the list of like potentially, but you want to be able to turn it down. It's like earlier in the week, it was actually at that same thing with Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz was asked if he was in, if President Trump would call him and offered him the VP, would he take it? And Cruz like, oh, I don't think that call's going to come. He never said yes or no. He just said, you know, just said he didn't expect it to come. So like everybody wants to be in that conversation because it says nationally I'm important, uh, even though. Most people don't want that position, you know, if they have a better position. And I think for, like, certainly as a governor, look, the governor of any state in, in, the, in the nation is better than being the vice president unless you have term limits. You know, if you had term limits, you know, maybe a guy like Abbott be going like, hey, I wouldn't turn it down, <laughs> you know, as if it came to me because I might be unemployed in a couple of months. <laughs> Let me give you an example of this happening um, within 24 hours. So Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell announced this week he's stepping down from his leadership role as the Republican Party leader in the in the Senate, which he, by the way, has held longer than any other person in American history. I turned 82 last week. <clears throat> the end of my contributions are closer than I'd prefer. My career in the United States Senate began amidst the Reagan revolution. The truth is, when I got here, I was just happy if anybody remembered my name. President Reagan called me Mitch O'Donnell. Close enough, I thought. 
It is close enough. So now that he's stepping down as Republican leader, who might succeed him? Well, they talk about, what is it, Jeremy, the three Johns in Washington. Those are, I know that I'm not even looking at notes. Those are John Thune, John Barrasso, and John Cornyn, of course, of Texas, who has been in uh, Republican leadership previously. In fact, you know, when people say he's, he's done his time and it's time for him to be leader, actually, that's not really true. You know, Cornyn had a quick rise to leadership in his very first term in the Senate which he made a big deal of uh, when he was running for re-election the first time. Well, Cornyn was asked by, and it looks like you tweeted this out, Jeremy, he was asked by uh, reporter John Moritz, who we know lovingly as Johnny Moe. Johnny Moe said, hey, are you going to go for it now that it's open? Are you the next majority leader or as a Republican leader of the USA? That'll be a decision made by uh, members of the uh, Republican conference. And, uh, heaven knows how that'll turn out. That was earlier this week. The very next day, Cornyn released a statement saying, quote, I am asking my Republican colleagues to give me the opportunity to succeed Leader McConnell. I have learned a lot during my time, both in and out of Senate leadership. During my two years as NRSC chair, we shrunk Democrats' majority by five seats and laid the foundation to retake the majority in 2014. And now he's talking about what they're going to do in 2024. And Jeremy, when these guys get these leadership positions, you better believe a huge part of it, if not the biggest part of it, is how much money have they raised for themselves and their colleagues, um, and you know whether or not they were able to build a majority for themselves. And of course, going into the um, going into this leadership fight, uh, you know, we'll, you know, we'll see how Trump inserts himself. I thought it was interesting that Cornyn made a, made it a point to say that he did talk with Trump about this before he announced. Even though here's Cornyn, who has been in elected office for decades as one of the elder statesmen of the Republican Party of Texas. And he feels the need to check with Trump to make sure it's okay, you know, to go for this leadership position. Um, Trump, of course, you know, could jump in and say, you know what, actually, I want somebody else. And then we would see what the Senate Republicans would do, uh, because they all just sort of bend to his will. You just heard earlier in the show, Greg Abbott genuflecting to Trump. Um, and so it, it, it's as simple as Trump could screw it up uh, for uh, for Cornyn, uh, who in many ways has, you know, paid his dues. Uh, but at the same time, um, the Republican leadership in, in the Senate may just, you know, tell Trump whatever. I mean, this all does come after the election, right? When they when they choose their leaders for the next time around in, in, in January. So maybe Trump won't be a factor by then. Yeah. And, and you know, Texas take you know, newsletter readers will remember, like, I did some piece on, you know, John Cornyn's complicated relationship with Donald Trump is going to be part of this conversation, right? You know, it's like, remember, it was just a year ago that... Uh, you know, uh, Cornyn had said that Donald Trump's time has passed him by, which turned into a slew of angry <laughs> truth social attacks on John Cornyn, where, you know, Trump ended up just slamming, you know, John Cornyn as a rhino, uh, asking at one point his audience, hey, who's a bigger rhino, John Cornyn or, you know, Mitt Romney? Uh, of course, they since have made up kind of. You know, where they, you know, now Cornyn says, you know, he endorsed Trump a couple weeks ago, so everything's good. Uh, but of course, like, who knows where that relationship really is? You know, that's one of the things as people talk about the three Johns, uh, the John who has the most 
Trump cred has been John Barrasso, the Wyoming senator. You know, he's seen as more of the guy who might be able to bring the Trump wing of the Republican Party kind of, you know, more together on some issues uh, that Mitch McConnell maybe had kind of failed at doing. But the question is, how big is the non-Trump wing? You know, there are a lot of Republicans in the U.S. Senate who still think Trump should just go away. Uh, and I'm wondering, will they want to go with somebody who's more like a John Cornyn who can play with Trump, but maybe isn't going to just give the store to him? Yeah. And I think that's where John Barrasso is going to have to kind of make the case that, like, yeah, I have more support from Trump, but don't hold that against me. You know, <laughs> like, right. don't mm-hmm. back me. Yeah. You know, it's like, because look, every senator. You know, they have pretty big egos themselves. They all think of themselves as presidents of their state. (laughs) They all do that. And so the last thing they want to do is look like they are taking orders uh, from Trump, especially if Trump loses. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine a scenario where, you know, Trump loses in November. Now, how much is his backing and support really going to be worth on, say, you know, January 1st of next year. Mm -hmm. Like, does it really matter if Trump's behind you or not? It's an open question because you know that a lot of Republican voters, no matter what the result is, will believe that Trump won. No matter what, right? I mean, you just had uh, Steve Bannon at CPAC, whenever that was, uh, last week, I guess, the the days were all running together on me, but he he was giving this speech. Bannon was talking about Trump winning, really winning in the last presidential cycle, and had the crowd chanting, Trump won, Trump won. And if you think those folks are going away, I got some bad news for you. <laughs> that, that That's not going to happen. Now, on the campaign trail here in Texas, the Republican primary is brutal, and I've started to think of it this way, Jeremy. It's not that it's the most contentious primary I've seen, because it's not. In fact, you know, and this is, I, you know, I'm very hesitant to criticize my colleagues in in media. But when people say it's, it's you know, it's so contentious, it's such a, you know, and potentially the most contentious primary in, in Texas history, I think back, you don't have to go back that far. I mean, I'm thinking of 2018 or 2016. Here's an example. In 2016, in Corsicana, Texas, Texas House race, uh, the state affairs chairman at the time was Byron Cook. And there is there was a billboard that was put up in Navarro County that said that Byron Cook wants to kill Down syndrome babies. And I think they just never got around to taking that down, Jeremy. I'm going to check. I think it's still up. It's just <laughs> outside Corsicana. So it's been contentious before. I'm going to say it this way, that it, it is contentious, but this is the most dishonest primary that I've ever seen um, for a variety of reasons. And those terms, contentious and dishonest, are not interchangeable. Now, things are very nasty on the campaign trail. People lying about each other, the governor lying about people, um, the lieutenant governor inserting himself into these races, the attorney general doing that as well. Uh, let me give you a sense of how nasty it's gotten out there. And we long ago, weeks ago, we passed the point where candidates and campaign workers are super irritable with each other. <laughs> um, Representative Jeff Leach, uh, who is from here in North Texas, where I am today, he and his GOP challenger, Darren Mize, had a little confrontation this past week. I think this was last Saturday, uh, and I published this video on social media earlier today, uh, and a strong language warning for you as Jeff Leach calls out Darren Mize for cussing him out at the polls, and what you'll hear here, it starts out with the challenger 
uh, Darren Mize is trying to ask Jeff some questions about some organizations and you know some folks who he may have given money to or people that are giving money to him or whatever. But listen to how this goes. If there's an organization that I've contributed money to, give me the courtesy Darren, and let me know who it is. Respect, I'm asking you. I feel very threatened right now. I'm asking you to step away from me. Your, your face is red. Your eyes are your eyes are bloodshot, and you you said fuck you to me. Okay, well, you I, you in my face and you yelled fuck I've you to been me outside. Ten hours here. That's, that's hours. fine. I have so, to, but I haven't walked up to you and cussed you out. Yeah. I haven't even I haven't talked to you today, bud. You can't walk up to me to and cuss in my face right after my daughter. Saying, you cannot do it. Uh, excuse me. You, what, did, what did you just say? I'm saying right after my daughter leaves, you oh approach me and you say fuck you to me. Dude, you're out you're of control. So I'm, I'm seriously asking you. You are out of control. I'm you, step away from me. Step. I'm asking you to stop talking to me, please. Now. You heard uh, the gentleman say that the other guy's face is all red and his eyes are bloodshot. On social media, the GOP challenger responded after I posted the video and he said that his face was all red because he'd been standing outside and he's sunburned. So all I would say about that, you know, for right now is that it's very important, even if there's cloud cover, you've got to use sunscreen if you're going to be out for 10 hours. All right. People and and one of the one of the folks who was helping that candidate said that they've been telling him that he needs to wear sunscreen and take care of himself. You've got to hydrate. You've got to wear sunscreen. You've got to take care of yourself. Otherwise, you're going to get in a you're going to be in such bad shape. You're going to get in a screaming match with the other guy and telling him to quote go fuck himself. Close quote. All right. So you got to you've got to take care of yourself, Jeremy. But the point is, these guys they're they've had it. With this campaign, that they've they've all been working really hard, and everything has been so nasty. Now in Abilene, uh, that was what I just told you about was in Collin County, in North Texas. Let's go out to the big country. In Abilene, there's a candidate running against Representative Stan Lambert. Her name is Liz Case, and it's come out over the last 24 hours here uh, in the newspaper in Abilene uh, that Liz Case, who has the Abbott endorsement, that she has never voted in Taylor County where Abilene is and where she claims to have a home there. Um, and that she still takes her homestead exemption, apparently, in Dallas County, where she lives in Dallas. And this has been something that people have been talking about in Abilene for the last couple of months, but it wasn't in the news. It was one of those word-of-mouth things. Now, I remember years ago a Republican consultant telling me that anytime you would see these residency challenges to candidates when someone will claim that uh, their opponent doesn't live in the place that they say they live, a lot of it was really just done to kind of drag that person through the mud, that maybe the residency challenge wouldn't be successful, but because it's in court and because there's a news story about it, it sullies their name and it kind of you know makes people think that they're a liar about where they live and all that sort of stuff. It just ends up being negative for the other person. Uh, so when Governor Abbott showed up in Abilene a few days ago, to support Liz Case, supporters of Lambert were outside the event, and they had a loudspeaker set up, and they were playing the theme song to the TV show Dallas. Now you hear them protesting outside Jeremy. This is something that we're not used to in Texas, and I'm not sure we're used to it anywhere. There have been national headlines about Texas Republicans eating each other alive over the last two or three weeks. Of course, we started to see more of it last year during the impeachment trial of Attorney General Ken Paxton. Um, but, you know, Abbott, I, I was there for all this, Jeremy. Um, Abbott had, and people are, will always take uh, some issue with my estimate of crowd size, but whatever. 
Abbott probably had about 300 people for his event inside this, uh, inside the event uh, center. The, the, it's the, let me see here, the Mesquite Event Center in Abilene. At max, he had about 300 people. Outside, there were probably about 120 to 150 people supporting Lambert who were protesting against Abbott for being there, you know, to support this other candidate. You don't see Republicans uh, protesting each other in Texas, but I've seen it for the last six weeks as I've traveled around the state. They're in Abilene, in San Angelo, in Nacogdoches, and in some other places as well. Uh, talking to hundreds of his supporters at a different event there in Abilene, Representative Lambert said, look, it's, it's simple. The out-of-state millionaires and billionaires are trying to buy the seat that he holds right now in the Texas House because they want to pass a school voucher plan. We need to send a message to Austin, Texas, that this house is not for sale. Yeah! That event uh, organized by Robin Wertheim, who works for Lambert, along with a couple of others. You know, they're, they're putting together events really quickly. You know, get, I mean, um, fun to watch this happen, Jeremy, as uh, Republicans are trying to figure out how to counter a Republican governor who is very popular. Um, and Abbott is just going, you know, you mentioned Biden being on offense about the border. Abbott is going on offense against these House Republicans in a way like I've never seen. Uh, as we pointed out previously, he's you know spending a bunch of money against them, uh, more than a half million dollars uh, in certain races, right? He's now spent something like about six million bucks which is the amount of that check that he got from a voucher supporter in December. He's been spending all this money, hundreds of thousands of dollars per race to try to remake the makeup of the Texas House, to try to, to reshape it uh, such that it would pass um, a voucher bill. And the way he's doing it, as we've said here, is not to talk about school vouchers, right? That that that's not Or a voucher plan or school choice or parental empowerment or any of those catchphrases. I guess those catchphrases never really caught on because the TV ads aren't even about that, right? I mean, the, he, let's uh, let's make this really clear. The governor is targeting Republican members of the House who voted for everything that he asked for when it comes to the border, right? Just like the people that he endorsed did. They also voted for all that stuff. The difference between the candidates on their record is that the ones he's targeting are the ones who voted against his position on school choice, right? And so listen to what he's saying about somebody like Ernest Bales, for example, um, who is from Liberty County. Bales voted no on vouchers. And you and you might remember last year, Bales was one of the really outspoken Republican members who did not agree at all with what the governor's trying to do as far as remake the way that education in the state works. And so you would, you know, if you're if you're following this casually, you might think that the governor would go after Bales about that, because Bales had really trashed the way that the governor is trying to do the education reform in this state. Uh, but that's not what Abbott's talking about at all. Instead, Abbott looks and he he released a series of these commercials, Jeremy, against those Republicans who he disagrees with about school choice. But he's only talking about the border. So Abbott looks right into the camera, and he slams them about keeping Texas safe from, quote, an invasion on the Texas-Mexico border. I need trusted partners in the Texas legislature to do even more. I cannot trust Ernest Bales to help me secure the border, but I can trust Janice Holt. She will work with me to 
build a border wall, deploy National Guard, stop human smuggling, and arrest illegal immigrants. You know, I never got into the show Game of Thrones like a lot of people did. And one of the things that, um, one one of the things about me is that if somebody says, Jeremy, you, they emphasize me, you would love this show because they, they, they would think that I would love how it can relate to politics. So they would say, you would love this show. Something about my psychology. I, I just think, what do you know? And then I don't want to watch that show. <laughs> I just kind of rebel against it if somebody says I would like it. But I did watch enough of it to see some of the scenes that I can relate to this. So in that show, there's at the end of the first season, there's a moment where I'll just, for, for, for people who haven't watched it, I'll just say it this way. One of the good guys is executed in the town square and people applaud for it. People love it when it happens. And the way that Abbott is trying to take out people like Bales and Drew Darby and Stan Lambert and these folks, for Republicans, these are all people that they would think are great, but he's painting them as horrible as people who are not you know, sufficiently conservative on the border, which would make the crowd hate them. Right, because because what's the most important issue for Republican voters? It's the border. How many times do we have to say this? And of course, as we pointed out here, the Republican um, opposition to school vouchers includes all these people who are also tough on the border. As you said, there are no no votes among Republicans for border security. Right. So so what the governor's doing? I I hate to say it this way. It, it just, it's the most brazen lies I've ever seen from a, from a Texas governor, ever. Um, and I, I try to pride myself on being more dispassionate about these, uh, you know, th- these pieces of political analysis that we put out there, whether that's in print or on the podcast or TV or wherever we, we happen to appear. Um, but the governor's doing something that is very smart politically, which is to use the border issue to try to get what he wants and get what his contributors want on the school voucher issue. But it could not be more dishonest. Now, here's the dispassionate part of this. It may be that the governor thinks that his candidates are losing in some of these races. If if he's going to go this hard against them right here at the end, they may have polling within Abbott's organization that says that Ernest Bales is winning. But the Stan Lambert is winning. The Drew Darby is winning. And so for, for the governor to go on TV with just four or five days left to go in the election and say, I can't trust these people, to look into the camera and say, I can't trust these people on border security. You need to vote them out and vote in my person. That might be some desperation on the part of the governor. Or it could be that he thinks he's right there in striking distance to take them out. And all he needs to do is that one more swing of the sword and these elections will go his way. Yeah, he definitely doesn't want to leave anything to chance. I, I can imagine that. <clears throat> you know, it's like, he, you know, as aggressive as he's been and as, as big of the promise as he made to go after these people, like, he has to knock these people out. I mean, like, he can't be in this position where it's like, oh, if you just pushed harder, you know, maybe you would have got there. I think we could take that part of the post-game analysis off the table. Mm-hmm. Like, when this is all said and done, I don't think anybody can say he wasn't, he didn't go full bore on right. this, right? Yeah. He totally, like, he, he's been doing three events a day, often in very different parts of the state, uh, to try to kind of knock these people out. He's been doing the TV ads. He's been pretty aggressive through this whole stretch. And 
that's the one thing I think we all question. Like, okay, how serious is he really on this? You know, because look, in you know years past, you know we've heard him threaten to go after people, mm-hmm. and he'd throw a punch or two, but it was hardly like he wasn't into it. Not like this. <laughs> this one, he's showing he's into the punch. He is definitely throwing some haymakers at these folks, and he better hope he knocks these folks out. Because I'm telling you, if if I'm an Ernest Bales and I'm coming back into the Texas House and the governor needs anything from me the next time around, whew, that's going to be a hard conversation on <laughs> any topic, anywhere, at any time. He better knock him and all the other ones he's going after out like this. Otherwise, he's setting himself up for a legislative session where he's going to have not just Democrats gunning for him, but he's going to have little pockets in the House Republicans who are aiming to you know, sabotage him too. So it's like he has, I think he's approaching this, at least from what I'm seeing and hearing from him, I think he's approaching this, you know, probably how he has to, like, you mm-hmm. better win. Well, it's like that better be in your mindset when you're going to take on this kind of a gamble. And I think that's, you know, I know we've talked about it on the show before, that's what Kim Reynolds up in Iowa had done. Mm-hmm. She just went all at these people who she used to serve with, you know, people who were on her side. She was going after full bore. And I think they underestimated how aggressive she was going to be. And I think Abbott's trying to mimic that, you know, the, you know, we're left with that same question go, will it be enough? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, we have such low turnout. And, and I think speaking to what you, you were saying earlier, we know from early voting and absentee ballots, like the campaigns will know who has voted already. Mm-hmm. They got the idea of how they're doing right now. And so I have no doubt that the Abbott machine, which is a $40 million operation, they know right now who has been to the polls already and what their likelihood probably mm-hmm. is of winning or losing. They have a feel for that, right? And, it's like, and so everything they're doing has to be dictated on that. Uh, so again, we don't know what that number looks like. Right. We don't know what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. But I get the sense that like they're like, let's just throw it all out there. You know, it's like, we got to make sure we take these guys out because we've gone too far now to say, oh, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and one reason that I'm being cautious about how this might go, you know, whether he can take out some of these folks or whether uh, whether this is really, you know, the last just death blow by the governor for some of these folks or whether it's a Hail Mary and they're not, you know, sure what's going to happen. It could be either of those things. One reason I'm saying that is because you know who else has access to a lot of the data you're talking about and who has probably the some of the best polling um, in the state that he would be able to look at his private polling would be Lieutenant Governor Patrick. Patrick is so poll driven. He hates when I say this, but it's but he but he admits it all the time in interviews and press conferences. You know, Jeremy, how Lieutenant Governor Patrick will come out uh, and say that whatever he's talking about is the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. Um, he makes his argument for whatever it is, and then he'll immediately, or almost immediately, depending on which press conference it is, he'll then go on to say the polls show that I'm right. That whatever he's talking about is that Democrats agree and Republicans agree and, and even independents agree with what I'm trying to do. He'll just run straight to the polling and what the polling says. And, when, and often when he talks about that, he's talking about his own private polling. Did you know, and I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but did you know when the Texas Senate is about to vote on one of his priority bills, he will visit the senators in the members' lounge where the you know they'll sit and eat lunch or sip coffee or whatever. He'll walk in 
with individualized polling that's printed out and hand it to the senators and show them how the bill polls in their district. And he'll say, well, I'm just trying to be helpful. I just want to let you know, you know, that people in your area support what I'm trying to get done here. And so I'm saying all that to say that whatever Patrick would say about these House races would be driven by some of the data that you're talking about, Jeremy. Yeah, it's funny because like it's making me remind it remind me of a, a conversation I had with a political strategist uh, probably a decade ago, where you know, like again, he's in the game of breaking down polls and trying to figure out which the right which route is the best way to go, right? And he tells me, "Man, I'm so glad Abraham Lincoln didn't have any polling." It's like, man, because he would never have done any of that stuff if he had seen how many people were against the Civil War. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so, so Patrick has been going after what he calls the, quote, rhinos in the House, which includes the Speaker, Dade Phelan, and includes some of these Republicans who voted against school vouchers, and then one Republican here in Dallas County who supported vouchers, but Patrick didn't like um, his take, this guy's take on uh, property taxes. So here's what Patrick told Jason Whiteley on WFAA-TV here in Dallas. Um, and he's acknowledging that taking out these incumbents, which Abbott's going after and Paxton's going after, and, Pat, and, and, and Patrick, all of them are going after a bunch of these people. Listen to how Patrick is cautious here. He, it, this is not, I mean, usually when you hear Dan Patrick talking, it's very strident about whatever it is. But listen to the way he talks about trying to defeat some of these fellow Republicans. We've never had a contest like this within the primary, and when it's over, we'll come back together. Uh, but these are serious issues that the House killed over and over and over again on many levels. And so it's always, Jason, difficult to take out an incumbent. But this, this time, I think you'll see some surprises. People will be surprised who loses. There will be some that hold on to their position. But um, there's a this is a... a, a this is the most unusual campaign that we've probably seen in Texas history. The question that he was asked there, Jeremy, was do you think there will be enough of these anti-voucher Republicans who are taken out by the governor and by yourself, Dan Patrick, to change the math in the House such that a school choice thing would pass? And that was his answer. He didn't say, hell yeah, we're going to get this done. He didn't say, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, we're going to have a clean sweep, anything like that. He wasn't anywhere close to that kind of confident. Instead, he said, it's very difficult to take out incumbents and we're going to have some surprises as we go. And, you know, for all the effort that has been put into defeating certain Republicans or, you know, propping up certain Republicans, um, another thing he said there is very true. There are always surprises. I, you know, on election night, I can think back two, three, four cycles during primaries or or general elections where we saw a Republican or a Democrat lose their seat. And it, for the folks in Austin, that particular contest had not been on anybody's radar. And folks go, wait, what happened there? What happened in uh, Gatesville? Or what happened in, uh, you know, down in South Texas? Or what happened with that? When it, you know, we, we have these, uh, you know, sort of rating systems for the races that are happening around the state on the House and Senate side and congressional races and all of that. Nationally, you have the Cook Political Report, right, that puts together its, you know, ratings of which uh, races are competitive, which lean Democratic and which lean Republican. Uh, but you always have a certain number, even if it's just one or two races, where it's just a complete surprise to everybody. 
I will say it's interesting that I didn't hear Patrick say anything that sounded like he was going. He and Abbott are going to be completely successful in what they're trying to do in taking out these Texas House Republicans. Yeah, it's like you know, and that's the nature of primaries, right? The turnout is going to be super low. Uh, anything can happen in these things, and so it's like, yeah, it's just really hard to kind of get a good read on you know, how you're doing in a primary, you know, it's like, you, like, especially since like, there's been a lot of push by Republicans nationally, you know, I'm c- talking to you, Donald Trump, where he says, telling people not to vote by mail, vote by mail is the best way for, you know, campaigns to track their voters, you know, it's like, you know, when they those votes have come in, you know, you can bank them, you know, you can save your money and spend it on other people. But when you, they're all now starting to wait until election day to come vote, you can't track any of that stuff. And you're still spending money on trying to get them to the polls mm-hmm. when that should have been in the bank already. And so that whole blocking and tackling part has started to kind of really change because of the messaging from Trump. So yeah, that's a long way to say is like, we're going into this a little blind. Like yeah. we don't know. And it's like the, you know, we think the governor is well known throughout the state, but mm-hmm. it's not like he's like, you know, the, it's only been recently that his poll numbers have shot up. You know, it's right. been a while to kind of like to see how Abbott had struggles with the Republican Party for mm-hmm. the longest time. There's factions of the party who were mad at him. Right. He was been booed at Trump rallies mm-hmm. before. So it's like all of that goes into the calculation. He had primary opponents who like you know were getting 10% of the vote mm-hmm. off of him. And so there's there shows there's holes in the Republican Party for him. You know, this is going to be a test of how big are those holes now? You know, it's like, does he ha- really have the influence of a Rick Perry or, or George W. Bush before him, who, you know, I think both had far bigger, you know, personalities and, you know, power structure than Abbott has had up until really the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I think he's really started to kind of develop that a little bit more. So it'll be really interesting to me to see these results, to see how that kind of shows has Abbott now gotten himself in the position where he's part of that, you know, Mount Rushmore of Republican governors now? Yeah. Uh, and I also think that it, it speaks to a test of not just a test of Abbott's strength in these races, but also a test of whether these Texas House races are really going to continue to be run the way that we understand them now, which is that they are local, local races. Right, and that the person who's in that seat is someone who is well known in the community. That they probably were either, you know, they. I mean, in the case of uh, Stan Lambert, for example, he was on the school board previously, and now he's in the legislature. Um, or someone like Justin Holland here in DFW, who's a Republican member from Rockwall County, who was previously uh, on the Heath City Council. The people who have been in office for a long time and at the local level. These are people that you know, unlike Governor Abbott who folks will see on TV where they might see him at one or two rallies in their area uh, during this campaign cycle. These are the guys that they see at the grocery store that he's trying to take out, right? These are the people who sit in church with them on Sundays. Uh, these are the people who show up all the time versus the governor who's kind of swooping in. And then you have all of this outside uh, money. Uh, you have millions and millions of dollars that are flooding into these districts uh, from not, not just national groups, but also some state level groups that are pushing for school vouchers and trying to take out some of these uh, Texas House uh, Republican incumbents um, who have been running their races previously, like their local races. Um, and, you know, you have some groups that are doing some organizing at the grassroots level, the, 
you know, the field operations, the block walking and all that sort of stuff, uh, the, the, as you as you called it, the blocking and tackling, you know, getting in there and really doing those just basic things that you do when you're running a race. Are the races still run that way, that it's a local, local race, or is it a more nationalized or statewide sort of race, right? And, and I think that this will definitely test that. I mean, the, you know, for, for a lot of people, I mean, look, Trump comes in and makes endorsements. When I was in Abilene a couple days ago, well, one of the people who supports Stan Lambert was saying that they still wanted to get one of those signs, one of the campaign signs of the opponent, Liz Case, because it's got her picture on it. It's got the, it also had Trump's picture on it because he's endorsed her. And it's got the governor's picture on it, as well as Dan Patrick and Ted Cruz, all of their pictures on the same campaign sign which I tweeted out. People can see that on my Twitter feed. Uh, the, the, this person who supports Lambert said that, that those people are all wrong, but it's kind of historic that you would have a former president insert himself into a local, local race like that. That's never happened in human history. And this person was saying, hopefully it'll never, never happen again. Um, but, it, but we are in an unprecedented time and it will tell us more about how these contests will be handled in the future. Well, yeah. And maybe even also like maybe you know, let these statewide officials kind of get a better sense as to how deep their impact really is. It's like, it's funny, they get elected statewide and people think, oh, everybody knows who I am. So like Ken Paxton might be about to learn how limited his power is as attorney general. Like just because he's endorses in race doesn't mean like regular human beings are like, oh my gosh, Ken Paxton picked this guy, I better go vote for him. You know, it's just like, I just don't know if that happens the same way. Like there are presidential endorsements that can matter, but boy, I don't know. It's like, it'll be interesting to see if like Dan Patrick and Ken Paxton move the needle much mm -hmm. in some of these local areas. I just, you know, this will be a great learning experience. Not what I thought I was going to say uh, here just a few days before the election, but I find myself in agreement with the little governor, Dan Patrick, because I'm not sure how this is going to go. <laughs> that, I'm going to leave it right there as, as we head into election day. If you haven't voted, by the time this show drops, early voting will be over. I'm pretty sure. Does that sound right, Evan? That sounds about yep. right. Yes. So if you haven't voted, you go got to go out on election day, which is Tuesday, March 5th. Now, you don't want to be fooled by some of these mailers when they get it wrong and it says vote on March 6th. <laughs> that's that's either somebody who screwed it up or they're messing with you. Okay. There was a, there was a screw up like that in the Houston mayoral election. Which, which you might remember. All right, Evan, that's enough show. Jeremy, is that enough show? We're all yep, on the same page all, about all. that? Okay. Yep. Everything's good. Evan Scherer is our producer. Thank you, sir. Jeremy's newsletter. Of course, you can check out uh, the pinned post on his, I still refuse to call it X, on his Twitter page, Jeremy S. Wallace. Right at the top there, there's a, there's a link to his free newsletter. You should be a subscriber at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you next time. <laughs>